Hey, we are right back into our origin series, and I want to thank Pastor Taylor Duke for preaching last weekend and give him a hand, doing a great job. Absolutely. And he continued our series. He covered chapters 42 through 45, which if you've already read that or you're here last week, you know that was just a crazy season in the life of Joseph. I mean, seven, fam- seven years of good are over. Now we're into the famine. And one day his brothers showed up to buy food because they needed it from the land of Canaan. And they didn't recognize their brother. Of course, the last thing they ever thought or who they were gonna thought they were gonna run into would be Joseph, the brother that they sold into slavery two decades earlier. But Joseph recognizes them right away. And, and uh, not to rehash every detail, but we know what did Joseph do. He messes with them just a little bit. And let's be honest, we would too, wouldn't we? If your brothers after 20 years showed up and they sold you to slavery, well, I call it messing. I think Joseph was testing them. You know, it took a long time where, you know, some of them got put in jail, so then they went home. He talked them into bringing their brother Benjamin back. All of this just to really survey the land and see if they are changed men. And eventually, Joseph, what does he do? He reveals his identity to them. And then what we read about is really one of the most shocking moments In all of Genesis, he forgives them for what they've done. You know, he says in chapter 45, verse eight, he says to his brothers, it was not you who sent me here. Now that is a loaded statement. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over Egypt. I mean, it is a really shocking moment. It kind of reminds me of when Esau forgave his brother Jacob. Nobody saw that one coming either. And now Joseph forgives his brother. So he forgives them and he also informs them that we are two years into a seven year long famine. So what that means is we got five years to go and these are going to be really hard years. That there's not going to be any reaping or sowing or anything like that. But Joseph says, I got a plan. And the plan is for you to go home, get dad, who he hasn't seen in over two decades because he finds he's still alive. Get dad, get all the family, and we're going to bring you up here to Egypt. I'm going to get you established in the land of Goshen, which is in Egypt. It's a part of Egypt. I'm going to get you established there. And and, and this is how we're going to save our family. And he says, if you don't do this over the next five years, you are going to be destitute. That's what you're going to become. So, you know, just fast forward the story. They race home. They, they tell their dad, Joseph's alive. I would love to know how that conversation went. What do you mean he's alive? Well, it's a long story, dad. I'm all ears. Okay, I, you know, he doesn't believe him right at first, but then when he sees all of the supplies that came from Egypt that Pharaoh made available through Joseph, he believes. And the Bible gives us this really interesting response from Jacob. The Bible says that Jacob, Joseph's dad, was revived. Now, I like that word, don't you? Revived. In other words, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a way of understanding this. It means, I have a reason to live again. That's what this word is. He's, he's revived. And, and we know why this word is appropriate, because if you go back to Genesis chapter 37, that's when Jacob finds out that his son, he thought, died, and he was deceived by his, his sons. He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he's, he's like, I'll never be the same, nothing will ever be right again, and he says, I will grieve, I will mourn my, mourn my son all the way till I meet him again in the grave. In other words, this will never be right. And, and you know, some of you who have lost a child, you, you know that. Life's not the same anymore. 
There's something has come over Jacob. I, I can't, maybe there's some depression. There's a darkness that's settled in on his life. And, and then all of a sudden, there's some light that shines through that darkness. And he's revived. And he says, I will go see my son before I die. And this is where we pick up chapter 46. You got your Bibles. We're going to start right in verse 1. So Israel set out. Now, remember, Israel is the new name God gave Jacob. So Jacob and Israel, same, same person. So Israel set out with all that he, was his. And when he re- reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. He replied, I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Couple things here. Jacob is 130 years old when this happens. Now, it's easy to lose track of how old people are sometimes in the Bible, but I'm just gonna help you understand what his stage of life is. He's 130 years of age when he finds out that his son is alive and he's gonna pack up everything he owns and leave the land he knows and go to Egypt. He and the rest of his family. Now, this has gotten to be a pretty large group because he's got all these sons, and all of their wives, and all of their children, and off they go, and about a week into their journey to Egypt, they stop at Beersheba. Now, this is the name that we've come across many times in the, the book of Genesis so far. Uh, this is a special place for Jacob's family, going all the way back to Abraham. And, and, he, and he worships there, and he makes a sacrifice there. And I have no doubts in my, in my mind as I think this through. I believe that he asked for God's help there. And and why wouldn't he ask for God's help? Let's just think about some of the circumstances. And the reason why I think he asked for God's help is because of how God responded to him. He's 130 years of age leaving his home. Now, I'm just gonna be honest with you. I haven't met too many elderly people who've reached that stage of life and say, hey, let's move to a new country. Have you? I don't know. I think at 130 years of age, that would be a daunting idea. You pack up everything, sell and move. I just, maybe you know some, I don't know very many elderly people that are just eager to move at that stage of life. And let's be honest, this isn't the first time that somebody in Jacob's family has fled to Egypt to escape a famine and it hasn't worked out so good. He might be thinking about his grandfather, Abraham. You might remember he fled to Egypt to escape a famine and that didn't work out so good for him. His, his father, Isaac, in another famine, he ran away to go to Egypt, but God stopped him. And now Jacob, here he is, fleeing a famine to go to Egypt, and it hasn't worked out for any of his, his family members. And of course, we also know he's going to see his son that he hasn't seen in 22 years, but it's all been precipitated by a famine. And so maybe there's some nervousness. He's got, uh, he's an elderly stage in life. He's leaving everything behind. He's going to Egypt, and it's never been a good call for his family to go there. And I believe at Beersheba, when he worships, he calls out to God for help, and God answers him in a vision. And this is the last vision that we know about that God spoke to Jacob. And, 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 he, and he talks to him. And he reassures him that what you're doing is right. What's happening now is, is right and it's in my plan. And I want, to, I want to tell you something, friends. There is nothing wrong at all with asking for God's help and his blessing when you're moving into a new phase of life. Not a thing wrong with it at all. I do a survey and I look out at our church family. 
You know how many people in our church family have moved here in the last year from somewhere else? Moved here to Northwest Arkansas, moved here to Bella Vista. And I know many of them have been praying about it. And let me tell you, if you've just moved here and you haven't been on your knees asking for God's help and blessing in this move, it's time to start that today. There's nothing wrong with asking God's help. I'd want God's help and blessing on every new phase of my life. You know, if I was, um, if I was newing, moving to a new area, if I was starting a new job, I'd want God's help, I'd want God's blessing. If I was starting a family, I'd want God's help. I'd want God's blessing, because we all know these little boogers don't come with instructions. You know what I'm saying? I want God's help. If I was going to a new school, or I was leaving for college, I'd want God's help. I'd want God's blessing on that new phase of life. If I was buying a new home or moving into a new home, I'd want God's blessing. I'd want his help on that phase of my life. If, if I was moving into my retirement years, I'd want God's help. I want God's blessing on this new phase of my life because there is nothing wrong with asking for God's help and blessing as we enter new phases. And I believe Jacob is, is asking God's help during this time. And, and let me just ask you, where does our help ultimately come from? It comes from, it's all over the pages of the Bible. Like, like Psalm chapter 121 verse two, it says what? My help comes from the Lord. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? He's the maker of heaven and earth. That's where my help comes from. 1 John 5, 14 says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We have a God that hears us when we pray. James 1, 5, anybody lack wisdom? And all of us, yeah. What should we do? We should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and be given to you. It's okay to ask for God's blessing and help as we enter new phases of life. What I also love is when, when, when God answers Jacob, when he speaks out to Jacob in this vision, what does he say? He says, Jacob, Jacob. Now, I don't really know why God said his name twice. Jacob, Jacob. But if you study the Bible much, you know that God has a habit of calling out to people by their first name twice. He did it to his father, Abraham, Abraham. We've read that before. Later in the Old Testament, we'll hear him call out to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. In the New Testament, we hear this, Martha, Martha. And probably most famously, what? Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Here we are, Jacob, Jacob. You know, you know what this says to me? You know, you know this, this double name, this calling somebody else by name. God knows our names. He knows your name. And he knows where you live. And he knows everything there is to know about you. Jacob, Jacob, Saul, Saul, Martha, Martha, Tom, Tom, Mary, Mary, Jim, Jim. He knows your name. You're made in his image. It's very much a reflection of how even Jesus described himself. You're to look in John chapter 10. Jesus calls himself a gatekeeper. He calls himself the good shepherd. And how does he describe himself? Like in chapter 10, verse three, he says the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. We have a very 
personal God who knows our names. A couple of verses later, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Verse 14, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. A couple of verses after that, verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. You know, Jesus called, or the Lord called out to Jacob twice. Jacob, Jacob, that was over 4,000 years ago. But even though it was that long ago, it has not changed this aspect of our God that he is very personal. He knows every detail of your life. And nothing can be hidden from him. And, and Jacob can't either. And so you have Jacob who's worshiping at Beersheba. And he's, I, I believe he's calling out to God for help in this new phase of life. And then God responds by delivering what turns out to be four promises that you add them all together. It communicates to Jacob, you're doing the right thing. Go for it. So if you look at the promises, they're right. Just listen right down through the text. What does God promise him? He says, you're going to go down to Egypt and I'm going to make you a great nation there. Now, this is not the first time we've heard this promise, is it? Said it to Abraham, said it to Isaac, said it many times to Jacob. And here we are again. He's heading into this new phase and he goes, let me remind you, I'm doing something with your family. I'm going to make you a great nation there. That Egypt is part of this plan. And then what's the next promise? He goes, and I'm going to go with you. Well, I tell you, I don't know if there's any more reassuring words that you could ever hear from God. I'm gonna go with you. It's not the first time he ever told this to Jacob either. And then he says this, I will bring you back to the land of Canaan. And he says, your son Joseph is gonna close your eyes. So what this means is you're gonna die in Egypt, but your body is gonna come back. And we see this played out in the rest of the Old Testament. Your body's gonna come back. The land of promise that I promised to your grandfather Abraham, your father Isaac, and to you, you will be buried here. What a tremendous promise, these four, that, that assures him that what I'm doing is correct. Now, if you read the rest of chapter 46, it's just a big long list of names. This is Jacob's family. It's a list of all the people that left the land of Canaan to go to Egypt with Jacob. And this becomes a pretty large group when it's all said and done. Verse 27 tells us exactly how many. The members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. And some of you are like, holy cow, I can't get my family of four in the van and out of town on time. Can you imagine traveling with 70? And then, and then who, all that comes with that. So they make it to Egypt after a long journey. And I really wish the Bible gave us more details about this reunion that Joseph has with Jacob. I mean, it's 22 years coming and, and, and we don't have, I mean, I'd love to be a fly on the wall and just see what that reunion was like. But this, this is the detail we get. Look at verse 29. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and he wept a long time. And I'll be honest with you. I have no idea what a long time is. Your long time is different than my long time. And so whatever a long time is, they embraced and they wept and they were happy tears. They were overcome with emotion um, a long time. Do you get the impression when reading about Joseph that he's a fairly emotional guy? I do. I mean, when he sees his brothers for the first time, he weeps over them. There's another time that, that he's in the room and he, and he kicks all the Egyptians out of the room and he weeps so loudly over what's happening in his family that they hear him through the walls and the whole house is talking about Joseph's emotions. When he reveals his identity to his brothers, finally, he, he's, he's a basket case. He weeps over them. When he gets to, you know, embrace Benjamin, his younger brother, he weeps again. Jo Joseph's a pretty emotional guy. Are you very emotional? Are you emotional? I always prided myself in not being very emotional. 
For years, I've kind of been one of those guys like, ah, I don't want to cry. But I don't know if I'm just getting a little older now. The tears come a lot easier. I don't know if you've had that experience. I don't know if things hit me different. I'm just at a different stage of life. But I kind of think of myself as a little bit more, like, fairly emotional guy. I'll give you a couple examples. When I'm watching a video of a soldier coming home from war to surprise his family, oh man, I'm a mess. And then I usually get those videos sent to me and there's like 10 of them in a row. And by the time I, I don't even know why I put myself through this. By the time I get to the end of it, I'm just, oh my goodness, I can't, can't take it. Like the father running into the school and the son, I just can't take it. Somebody shares a very emotional story or something about their life. And for those of you that don't understand, something gets right here. What is that? I don't know what it is. It's right here and it starts to go up. And I don't know what it pushes up, but it swells this part right here. And I don't get it. So when I realized that I'm more of an emotional person than I thought I was, this is when it hit me. This is when it really hit me and I knew something had changed in my life. It hit me in the final scene of the movie Creed. I'm a huge Rocky fan. And you know Creed, if you don't know the movie, Creed is the reboot of the whole Rocky series. And it follows Apollo Creed, who was from the first movie, to his son Adonis Creed. And then Rocky, he's an older guy now and he's fighting cancer. And in the final scene of the movie, you have Adonis Creed with an older, very sick Rocky Balboa. And they're walking up, you know, these are the famous steps to the Philadelphia Museum. And if you remember the first movie, you know, Rocky, the training montage, young, uh, strong Rocky, you know, dun, 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 dun. And, he's, and he gets to the very top and, he's, and there's been a statue up there for years. You know, you know what I'm talking about? So here we are at the end of Creed. And young Adonis and Rocky Balboa are walking up the same steps and it hit me hard. And, and, and the tears started to come down. I'm like, oh, it's Rocky. And it's, it's Apollo's kid. And, and look at them. They're together on the steps. And my wife's like, what is wrong with you? And I said, I don't know. If I had been in the room with Jacob and Joseph, I promise you, I would have been weeping. That would have got me. I'd have been, I'd have been, I'd have been a mess. 22 years apart and father and son come together and we get one verse and, and they just embrace for a long time. It, it's a special, special, special moment. And at the end of it, when they get done hugging, Jacob says this, now I can die. That's a loaded statement, you know? That's a statement made by somebody who has come full circle in life. And he says this specifically in verse 30. Now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. I've seen it all. I've done, I'm just so ready. I'm, I'm, life is complete again. And I would argue this. Only a Christian could today could ever have that. Because only a Christian is really ever ready to die. Only a fully devoted follower in Jesus can look at a life that's come full circle and say, I can go to heaven now. So Jacob, he feels like, man, my life is complete. And I could die and it would be just fine. 
Little does he know that he's going to live another 17 years. Did you know that? He's got 17 more years to go. And by all accounts, they're very happy, fulfilled, rewarding years with his family. Now we're gonna, next week, we're gonna finish off Jacob's story. And can you believe that this whole series is coming to an end next weekend? We're gonna finish the book of Genesis. I don't know what I'm gonna do without Genesis. I don't know, but anyway, 26 weeks, wow. But we're gonna bring his story to an end next week. But I wanna point out a little detail that maybe a casual reading of the text wouldn't reveal. How old was Joseph when he got sold off into slavery? He was 17. Jacob had Joseph for 17. And now a couple decades apart, God brings Joseph and Jacob back together and God is gonna give Jacob another 17 years with his son. Now, I don't know if that means a hill of beans, but it also might just be a nice example of how sometimes God blesses and harmonizes our lives quite well. And I just wanted to point that out to you. So the entire family is now reunited in Egypt and uh, Joseph's got a plan. He gets them set up into the land of Goshen. But here's the deal. Even though Joseph is the second highest ranking official in Egypt, he just does not have the authority to give away land and to let his family live there. So he's like, Pharaoh still has to sign off this. I know Pharaoh knows you're coming. I know he said, give you something good, but he still has to sign off this. I got to go talk to him. So this is where we pick up in the story. Look at verse 31 of chapter 46. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds and they tend livestock and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks you, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servant Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on just as our fathers did. And then you'll be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen. And this is a very interesting detail that we learn. For shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. That's very important. In fact, the four verses that we just read together, I would argue are among the most significant of Joseph's whole story. And you might be like, well, how is that so significant? I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you, but it's, it's loaded, actually. Not like I said, a, a, a casual reading of the text probably wouldn't reveal it, but this is packed. And this is why. Because God is going to use an already existing prejudice against shepherds to advance his promise. I'm gonna show you how, but God is gonna take a prejudice that's already exists in the land of Egypt and God is gonna use that for his good and his promises and and his glory. I I don't know what it was about shepherds that the Egyptians didn't like. Uh, We don't have any of those details. They just were considered lower class people. They didn't associate with them. They wanted nothing to do with them. Well, what was Jacob's profession? What's been the family profession for decades? They're shepherds. They're nomadic people. They move around all the time. And as this plays out, you're going to see this in the text. As it plays out, you are going to see the sovereignty of God. You're going to see God's promises come into focus. You're going to see the hand of God doing things through an already existing prejudice in the land of Egypt. God promised Jacob what? I'm going to make your family into a mighty nation. And that's going to happen in Egypt. And and here's what we find out. The only way that this family can grow and develop into a mighty nation is if they maintain their identity. 
They got to maintain their identity. They, they can't just be mixing it up with the Egyptians. So here's what's fascinating. We know what would happen, right? We know what would happen if Jacob's family just moved into town, moved wherever they wanted Egypt, and they just started intermingling with the Egyptians. We know, because we've seen this many times in the Bible, that over a generation or two, that's all it would take, that they would lose their identity as Jacob's kids altogether. They would start intermarrying with, with the Egyptians. They would start having children together. They would start adopting some of their own practices. A generation or two later, there's no distinguishable difference between Jacob's family and the people of Egypt. And God knows this. And that's not his plan. God's got an entirely different plan for what would become the Israelite people. So look what God does. He uses an already existing prejudice to prosper his people and advance his promise. They get relocated to the land of Goshen, which is Egypt, but it's an area of Egypt where they can have it. And as it turns out, this is all God's providence here, the land of Goshen turns out to be among the best land in all of Egypt. And it's in the land of Goshen that we see Jacob's family explode in growth over the next couple hundred years. And this was all God's doing. This was not dumb luck. This was not, that's how the cookie crumbles kind of thing. This is not let the chips fall where they may. This is the hand of God. And let me just tell you something. It is really wonderful to look at things that are happening in this world or look at things that are happening in your life and you can honestly say, that's the hand of God doing that. I could, I could point you to many things right here in our church just in the last couple of years that we as leaders sit back and go, that's the hand of God. That's not our doing. That's God's doing. And let me tell you, it's a wonderful thing to see the hand of God doing and moving in your life. And we're seeing it right here with this part of the Bible. So if you keep reading, the family gets to meet Pharaoh. And you can imagine 130-year-old Jacob going in to meet Pharaoh. And, and you read all about it. We'll talk about it a little bit next week. But, but all goes well. And Pharaoh allows them to move to the land of Goshen. And not only does this work out so good, they get to keep all their, their herds and everything else. And, and not only that, but Pharaoh, who he's just like all the other Egyptians in that he finds shepherds detestable too. He says, you know what? I've got plenty of flocks and herds. Jacob, are there special people in your family with special care? Maybe you can just watch over mine too. Now, how about that? Here you have God rescuing Jacob's family from a famine, relocating them to Egypt as part of his promise, isolating them and helping them maintain their identity and using Pharaoh to bless them the whole way that they have jobs and more than they can handle. And you know what you call it in the Bible? Win-win all the way around. So verse 11 of chapter 47. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, which is Goshen. As Pharaoh directed, Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all of his father's household with food according to the number of their children. And this is very significant considering that we're only two years into a five-year famine, we got five years to go. And you know how your Bible um, sometimes has subject headings and titles to different paragraphs? If I could write this one, I would say, Joseph hooks his family up, all right? That's what, that's what he did. 
great land. I'm going to provide all you need. And let me tell you, that is a stark contrast between how the rest of Egypt is going to spend the next five years. So, so you have Jacob's family. They're, they're set up pretty good. But the average everyday Egyptian, their life is about to get harder and harder. And like I said, if you just keep reading, it documents very clearly how hard their lives got. Two years into the famine, here's what we find out. All the money in Egypt is gone. What I mean by that is all of the families that live in Egypt, all the money that they had, all their savings, they spent to buy food. Why is that? Remember, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. They stored up during the seven years. Who has all the food? Pharaoh has all the food. Who has all the needs? The people. How do you get the food? You buy it and they have depleted their bank accounts. Now what are they gonna do? They got five years to go. Well, what they do is they sell all of their livestock and belongings to Pharaoh. So they sell it all and then he gives them more food and that gets them another year or so. They run out of food again. We got it. What do we got? Well, we got land. We got houses. Let's deed all that to Pharaoh. He takes it all, gives them more food. They're good for another year or so. Here we are approaching the final year of the famine. They're out of food again. What do we do? What do we have left? We have our bodies. And all the residents of Egypt, Egypt, they sell themselves into service to Pharaoh and he gives them more food. And we're like, man, that's really harsh. That, that's really harsh. I mean, they've sold themselves basically into slavery so they could eat. And we say that today, that's really harsh, but you know what? That's not the reaction that we read about from the Egyptians. The, the Egyptians didn't think that was really harsh. They were so thankful to be alive that they praised Joseph for saving them. I guess you just get to the point where your circumstances are so severe, you're just glad you still have a roof over your head and food to eat. You don't care that Pharaoh put his brand on your animals. You don't care that his deed, his name is on the deed of your land. You're just glad that you and your family are alive and they praise Joseph. Look at, look at chapter 47, verse 25. This is what they say to Joseph. You have saved our lives. And then they said, may we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. Not, not God in heaven. Lord, they mean Pharaoh. And they said, we will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph passes through Pharaoh a new law in the land. Now the famine is almost over. He gives them all seed to plant. And he says, when this harvest comes in, because it's going to happen this time, because the famine's almost over, uh, one-fifth of everything you grow comes back to Pharaoh. But you keep the four-fifths for your family and for next year's crop. And the people were thrilled about it. And that remained the law for many, many decades after that. So that's what Egypt, the Egyptians went through. But two verses later, we're reminded what the Israelites went through. Look at verse 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. So Jacob's family, they didn't have to give any money. Jacob's family didn't have to sell their herds. Jacob's family didn't have to give away their land. No, they got land. They, they really prospered. They certainly didn't sell themselves into servanthood to Pharaoh. No, they came out pretty good. And I reminded in Beersheba when Jacob traveled to Egypt and God said, I will be with you and I will make you a great nation. Uh, this, is, this is my plan. And what you're seeing here is you're seeing a promise made and a promise kept. God has got his people set up the way he wanted them to in Egypt. Now, I want you to see something else. Like I said, next week, we're going to tie in a lot of this back together, but I want you to see something. And I want you to know something about Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh is not a believer in God at all. I hope we know that. You know, when we talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Pharaoh could care less about that. In fact, he's a pagan. He worships many gods. And just like all the people in Egypt, they're, 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 they worship all kinds of gods. And, and I'm sure, I, I would imagine that, that Joseph has told Pharaoh all about his journey and about the Lord, but he could care less about Joseph's Lord. That's not who Pharaoh is. Yet, I want you to see something. God used him to care for Jacob's family. Now, I am going somewhere with this, and I want you to stay with it. He uses Pharaoh, this pagan, to be a part of his plan for Jacob's family. Now, now Pharaoh, he's the one that provided all the supplies so Jacob's family could come. He's the one that signed off on them to live in the land. He's, God used him. And let me ask you a question. Who then was really in control of all the comings and goings and happenings in Egypt back then? It was God, wasn't it? There's this really interesting proverb in the Old Testament, Proverbs 21, verse one, and it just says this. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. Let me read that again. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. Do you believe that about God today? This is a very important question. Do you believe that about God today? Then in our crazy political environment that we're living in, do you believe that about God today? I want to challenge your thinking a little bit this morning. I don't know if you've ever felt this way. It's an easy way to think that and we got to get our people, we got to get Christians in office because that's who God's going to use to ride the ship and change things around. And, and we, we kind of have this idea that, that God can only use believers to do his purposes. Now, I'm a firm believer that we need Christians at every level of government. We need Christians in, in all kinds of work. We need Christians in our schools. We, I'm a firm believer in that. But is it a right way to think that, man, we got to get all these Christians in office because that's who God's going to use? Just think about it. God can work through people like Pharaoh. And the Bible is loaded with examples of how God uses complete unbelievers, pagans, to advance his purposes and to bless his people. Just in the Old Testament, a couple names. Cyrus is one. Nebuchadnezzar is another one. The New Testament, we might say Caesar and others. For me, this is a wonderful reminder from our text that God can use even the most ungodly of people to advance his purposes. And as a Christian, I want you to know, I want you to hear my heart on this. I get sick to my stomach over a number of conversations that are happening in Washington, D.C. these days. I do. Um, I pray about the direction that our country is headed. I pray for our leaders. I, I know many of you do as well, and we should. We should pray for all of our leaders. Trust me when I tell you this, that more than a few times on a Sunday morning, I have walked up to this platform, and the words that I want to say out of my mouth start like this. Can you believe? But that is not my job. And God help us 
if our precious times of worship and communion and devotion to God's word and fellowship ever sound like a political rally. God help us if that ever happens. The Egyptians, they didn't like shepherds. And God used that as a catalyst to keeping his people separated from the pagan practices of the Egyptians. And I'm not at all surprised at all of how many times in God's word that I read about shepherds and I wonder if there isn't deeper meaning still throughout the text. Shepherd is a figure of speech that we use today to describe Jesus. Jesus described himself as a good shepherd. We just read John 10 where he talks about that. The way that the Bible speaks about it is he's the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. And let me tell you, most of the people in our world today, they don't like that shepherd either. You know that? They don't. They find that shepherd detestable too. And I'm talking about the real Jesus. I'm talking about the Jesus, the, the Jesus, the Christ, the Lord of the Bible. I'm talking about the one who was born of a virgin, who performed miracles, who preached about the kingdom of God, who, who, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of the world, who was raised to life three days later, who ascended into heaven, and who we know is coming back again. That good shepherd, that's the one today that our world finds very detestable. And did you know that it is still God's plan for his people to be separated? Do you realize that? It is still his plan for his people to be separated to surrender to the good shepherd. That forms the basis of our separation. And separation from what? Is it from people? I don't think so is a separation from a godless system and a worldly way that people think and operate and act. That's what we are separated from. We are God's people today. It's different. It's not Jacob's family anymore. It is the church. That is God's people and his God's desire the same. I don't want you intermingling with the worldly, godless systems of the world today. You are called to be separate. There's a word for that in the New Testament. It's called holy, holy as we follow the good shepherd. What that means is we don't look like, act like, talk like, think like, engage like the world does. And we're God's people and we're still called to be separate. And the good shepherd, the good shepherd is the one that forms the basis of our separation. I think 1 John 2.15 says it about as well anywhere. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's the, the godless, worldly system that we live in. That's driven by that. It doesn't come from the Father. It comes from the world. The world and its desires, they pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. The church today, we are, we are God's family. And we're different. And we follow the good shepherd. And he's still detestable to the world. But take heart. Our Lord has overcome 
the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. Dear Lord, we just give you praise today. We thank you, God, for your holy word, how it teaches us and guides us and shapes us as always. Lord, may we surrender to what your word says. Lord, may, may it form our, 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 our shape, our character, our drive, our, our beliefs, everything, Lord. We, we want it to come from your word, nowhere else. Lord, you've called us to a very special role in this world. We are your image bearers. We are ambassadors for you. We are armed with the greatest message that mankind could ever have. And we know, Lord, they find it detestable because most of our world is caught up in a godless system. They've not seen the light yet. But Lord, that's our job. Powered along, driven by your Holy Spirit to be light in the darkness and good news to a lost world. And and Lord, and to do that properly, the only way is for us to stand apart. And, and to be like, like, like you said, Lord, like a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Lord, salt that has not lost its saltiness. Difference makers. Lord, that's what you were establishing with the Israelites and it's what you've established with the church that we would be your ambassadors until you return. So Lord, this is our prayer. Help us to be separate from worldliness. Help us to be unified among the children of God. Lord, may we be what you have us to be. And Lord, highlight areas of our lives where we might be in danger of compromising that holiness. We might be flirting with worldliness. But Lord, convict us today and help us to see the one true path forward. This is our prayer, Lord, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.